and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 17th of June with me, Ian Welsh. When we were in Stockholm recently for World Environment Day, I spoke with Everland's Josh Tosterson about his organisation's new forest plan, which sets out an ambitious pathway to eliminating deforestation by 2030, utilising the unprecedented levels of potential carbon finance for projects tackling deforestation around the world. Plus, there's a chance to hear how Scope 3 Peer Group founder Oliver Hurry and I wrapped up Innovation Forum's recent Future of Climate Action event last week. That's all to come. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Some big brands are backing a $250 million fund designed to hasten reduction in emissions in the apparel sector. Among the early supporters of the Apparel Impact Institute's Fashion and Climate Fund are H&M Group, Lululemon Athletic and the Schmidt Family Foundation. Many more names are expected to join the fund, which hopes to raise $10 million from each. The fund is designed to support new low-emission programs and solutions with a pipeline for getting them rapidly to scale. There will be a focus on supply chains. A recent World Resources Institute found that 96% of the sector's emissions come from the supplier farms and factories used by fashion brands. Consumer goods giant Procter & Gamble has set some stretched new targets on water use as part of its overall 2030 environment goals. The company has the aim of being net positive, restoring more water than is lost at its manufacturing facilities located in areas that are water-stressed. P&G has already improved water efficiency against the 2010 baseline by 25%, as well as recycling and reusing over 3 billion litres of water in 2021. A number of the projects are located in the Bear River area in the western US states of Utah and Idaho, and include schemes to restore natural habitats and water quality and to enhance water use efficiency for local communities. P&G has also committed to restoring more water than is consumed using its products in Mexico City and Los Angeles. Another week and another report that casts doubt on the credibility of some corporate net zero plans. This time it's the annual report from the UK-based Net Zero Tracker, which says that only half of the Forbes 2000 largest companies have yet to announce net zero plans. Two-thirds of companies that have a public net zero target haven't made it clear how they plan to achieve it. The report also points out that many companies with net zero targets have not set any interim targets for the years before 2050, which makes the IPCC's stated target of having emissions this decade look a little tricky to say the least. The ocean plastic pollution story has taken a new depressing twist according to a paper in online journal Science Direct. Plastic materials have been found to combine with oil residues from accidental releases and through processes of evaporation and solidification create a new solid structure that the researchers have named plastitar. This material can become permanently attached to rocks and examples have been found at a number of sites in the Canary Islands in the eastern Atlantic where the scientists were undertaking their research. Finally, a brief follow-up to my mention last week of UK journalist Dom Phillips, who had disappeared in the Amazon with his colleague Bruno Pereira. It has emerged that the two men have been killed, likely by organised criminals operating illegal forest exploitation. Dom was a regular contributor to The Guardian, and the newspaper's global environment editor, Jonathan Watts, has described the two men's killings as an act in an undeclared war against nature and the people who protect it. The front lines of this war are, he said, the remaining biodiverse regions of the planet, which are so important for world climate stability. The tragedy will, of course, only serve to underline the importance of business to play the role it can to suppress the illegal exploitation of forests. I was delighted to be joined by Oliver Hurry from the Scope 3 Peer Group and the Sustainable Procurement Pledge to wrap up Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action event last week. Here are some of the highlights of our comments. 
I started the whole conference talking with Rob Cameron from Nestle a couple of days ago. I asked him at the end of our chat to just think he could perhaps think about a few things that uh, he thought we'd be talking about over the rest of the event. A few things stuck out for me. He hoped that we'd see consensus that the pace of change is absolutely essential. Now, I don't know about you, Olive, but that's something I've certainly seen in the last few days. There really does everybody's got the bit between their teeth and there really is now a massive great push forwards at speed. You'd agree with that? Yeah, I think so. As we've often spoken about, I mean, if you compare the last 15, 16 years of effort on supply chain emissions to the last two, it's almost unrecognisable. One thing I do feel, though, is that the, the pace and the urgency is we're getting muddled. I feel like we're almost getting muddled. This is why in conferences like this are so essential to sift through the noise and the guidance and the pace and the demands and the technologies and everything. It is dramatically speeding up. I think it's scaring a few people. It's muddling a few people. I mean, we've often also said that you know, for years, people have been knocking on the boardroom door saying, let us in. And then suddenly boards are saying, scope three, we're experts. We've set targets. Let's go. I do think that it's very important that people take a breath, do some obvious stuff, get going, but also get those building blocks in place, that framework, those metrics, the, you know, everything. We mustn't let the pace be the problem now. <laughs> That's uh, a concern of mine a little bit. I agree entirely. I, mean, I think the point is that everyone has to identify any low-hanging fruit, deal with them now. At the same time, as you say, as taking a step back and thinking about the things that we don't know how we're going to do yet. You, you mentioned hydrogen at the start of your session just now. There's technology that we haven't got yet. We are going to have to find it and build it and develop it over the next decade or so. But in the meantime, there are an awful lot of ways we can mitigate and decarbonize immediately. And I think that's really important to bear the two things in mind. There's also kind of a twin-track approach everything that you can do now, do it, and think about everything that might lead to solutions long term. Rob also pointed out that he found it particularly shocking that only one in five Fortune 500 companies have scope three targets, which is a bit surprising. There is a danger when you're in this sort of event, there's a bit of preaching to the choir mentality because people who have come to this event, chances are they are further on and dealing with these issues. Your scope three peer group, I guess you'd like to have everybody, all Fortune 500 companies on that, so they'd all be part of your group. Yeah, I think it's slightly misleading that because there are so many companies doing so much on scope three that haven't got into the target piece either as well. There is a lot of work that companies have been doing. And I think a lot of people are very scared about scope three targets because they are outside of their control a little bit. I mean, that's a phrase that's used that, you know, it's much more difficult to control. But I'd also challenge that. I think, you know, procurement has an incredibly important role to work with suppliers to enable them and support them. It is more in control than people think. But I think that's a big reason why scope three targets are incredibly scary because it is way out of your control and comfort zone for a lot of businesses. But they are often 90% of your emissions. You could argue they're the most important targets of all. It is scary. And I think the complexity of scope three scares people. But when you break it down, there are, as we've discovered in this conference, plenty of things you can just get on and do. Eat the elephant in little chunks, you know, don't boil the ocean. All the cliches apply as usual. But yeah, it's true. Of course, every journey starts with the first step. There's another one. Yes, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. The fact is that most people are engaged on scope three more than you think. But it helps if you are a big company, because if you are a big company and you do have that leverage, it's scarier if you're a smaller company where on an individual basis, it's hard to see how you have that sort of leverage with suppliers. The other thing that I recall from my conversation with Rob is that the huge investments are going to be necessary to decarbonize. We can't get away from that. There are just going to be massive investments necessary. And how we share them out is going to be key. How the value chains will deal with these things is a real concern. There seems to have been, for me across the sessions, a consensus that we can't just put it all onto, for example, smallholder farmers or the traditionally putting it onto grower communities 
in agriculture supply chains because they can't wear it. So there needs to be a recognition of the value at different stages in supply chains. And that needs to be reassessed, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's the supply chain owner that's setting the target. And then they feel like it's the role of the supply chain, usually the first tier, because they're the only ones they actually know and are talking to. It's their fault. There's a lot of pushing the problem down the chain. You tell your suppliers, in fact, oh, I've done that now. I've spoken to my suppliers about it, so that's job done. And increasingly, I'm seeing in collaborations that tend to be peer collaborations. You know, you collaborate with your peers. The best collaborative initiatives at the moment are value chain collaborations, ones that involve everyone involved into including the companies on the ground. And in order to solve the big problems of our time, particularly supply chain emissions, you need to have all of the players all through the supply chain collaborating together rather than just all of the people in their ivory tower thinking about how they're going to talk to the farmers and talk to the suppliers. So we need that vertical conversation, I think, more and more, definitely. And I think people are recognising that. I think we are definitely seeing more than that. Innovation Forum regular attendees won't be surprised that I picked up that it's really important not to underestimate how important stopping deforestation is. There is no route to the Paris Climate Goals while we continue to cut down the trees. Other nature-based solutions are developing and very exciting, particularly in the agriculture sector, no-till, all those sort of things, cover cropping. But deforestation is the big one. And I think you have to keep coming back to that is the big thing we need to be dealing with. And I certainly heard that echoed across the few days we've been together. Targeting the low-hanging fruit, as I said, but absolutely pushing off forward on the exciting technical developments that we don't yet have. And there's some instances I don't think they know exactly how they're going to go. It'd be interesting to see, enjoyed all the 2030 dreams, how many of them will come true and what will the route to get there, I think will be really interesting. Yes, perfect forests. That was a really good description of what a perfect forest could look and feel like. But I also wouldn't discount seaweed, algae, blue carbon as another area, which I think is incredibly exciting. But as I said, we're going to need to get our heads around deforestation offsets, insets and all of that world, which has traditionally been a bit of a wild west. And we're going to need to get pretty clear on that pretty soon because the amount of projects required, we need to get on with that pretty soon. Yeah, there was a really interesting consensus on the panel I did earlier today around we were talking about carbon credits. Everybody agreed, and this is something that I've, it's not been agreed much in the recent past, that there is an absolute essential need for carbon credits that prevent deforestation as much as remove carbon from the air themselves. It is the best way to quickly deal with these problems is to stop the deforestation that's happening right now. That's the first thing we can do. And things and projects and credits that help that really do make a big difference and are essential. On that point, side benefits of these programs are vital for the companies as well. Everybody was talking about, well, it's so important that indigenous communities are not hindered. There are social benefits around coming into these issues as well. I guess it comes down to allowing indigenous communities to value the forests standing rather than the forests destroyed. You would have noticed as well, regenerative is ultimately going to take over sustainability as the jargon and everything else. And I think this is absolutely critical, as is the just transition. It's classic human behaviour to go, right, we're going to solve this problem by doing this. And then suddenly realise you've just pushed the problem elsewhere. And this is the problem, though, for businesses and particularly in people who are in non-sustainability roles who are like, oh, hold on. So that's not the answer because I need to worry about that as well and that and that. Procurement's a great example. Procurement have to worry about absolutely everything from human rights to scope three and be an expert on all of it. And it can bewilder them somehow. So we need to make this ability to deal with this holistic sustainability less scary, more manageable. And a lot of that will come down to data and hopefully managing those number of different metrics all in one go. The tricky one. I think you're right about procurement because they have to deal with all of these issues now, as well as the fact that they are being pressurised to get the products delivered, pressurised on the price. So all the old pressures are still going to be there, but they've got these new ones added in on top. 
which conflict in many respects. Um, they don't necessarily have to, but they, you know, on the face of it, are conflicting interests and conflicting requirements. Jargon is an interesting one as well. I mean, you mentioned the sort of just transition, regenerating agriculture, all these new terms we're going to learn. Someone pointed out to me yesterday at a session that, that you know, talking about net zero is not actually helpful or not as helpful as talking about decarbonisation, because that's what we really need to be doing. We're going to be netting off the last little bit. You can't offset your way to net zero. You can, if you're a high-emitting sector, of course, use offsets now to lessen your impacts you know, on a net basis, but you still need to be decarbonising as far as you possibly can. That was an interesting point. You know, we shouldn't really be talking about net zero as much as we do because it's deep decarbonisation is the route to getting this right. I think jargon targets is so much that creates the wrong behaviour change and mindset. Targets is an interesting one. As soon as you set a business a target, it fixates itself with having to measure it. And they spend so much time trying to measure the target that they don't worry about the number coming down. And I wonder whether increasingly we might need to see targets for trajectory, if that makes sense. Targets of pace of improvement. So I'd be interested to see if we start to see over the next few years targets coming in to say, how fast are you improving? I think that would yeah. be an interesting metric to look at because that would encourage companies to act fast rather than fixate themselves on measurement. You know, an interesting thought, maybe. I'd like to sound that, yes, particularly when it's all about, in this instance, it's the pace that's so essential. Well, that was really what I picked out of the last couple of days. Was there anything further you picked out, Ollie? Anything further you wanted to cover to wrap up? It's amazing how popular the conference has been. I think Scope 3 is without doubt the challenge of the moment and of the, our time. I think it's absolutely critical. I thought there were some fantastic presentations, some really good audience participation. We are all in this together. We do need to sort it out. Collaboration always comes up. We need to do it together. Data always comes up. We need to measure it. Action. Get on with it. That's always the key message, isn't it? Get started. I think one of the things I've also noticed is there's so many diagrams and roadmaps that look linear. And if they don't look linear, there's usually circles with arrows. What we need to do is have things, as you said earlier, in parallel. Everything needs to happen, unfortunately, at once. There isn't a line and arrows and circles. Everything needs to happen at once. We need action and measurement. I know it's not what everyone wants to know, but that's true. We need to see all the aspects of this happen now in parallel yep. rather than in order. That's the uncomfortable truth, isn't it? The Innovation Forum Autumn Event Programme includes the next in our series on the future of plastics and packaging on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that develop impact at scale. Full details on the Innovation Forum website. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd November, also in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open candidate debate and discussion. Now is a good time to register, with a €400 Euro discount on conference passes available until the end of June. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with President of Everland, Josh Tosterson, about the new forest plan that sets out a vision of eliminating deforestation by 2030. This is initially through the rapid deployment of up to 75 new Red Plus forest projects in threatened forest landscapes, utilising the unprecedented levels of carbon finance that are becoming available. So we're here in Stockholm. We've uh, been having some events around the UN Environment Programme's World Environment Day for 2022, and you've just launched Everland's Forest Plan. What is this plan and what's its ambition? The forest plan, what is it? It is the response of our organization to the commitment that has been made by over 140 of the world's leaders at the COP26 to end deforestation by 2030. 
that itself is a recognition of the fact that we are going to be unable to achieve the ambitions set forth in the Paris Climate Accords without ending deforestation within that same time period. It's a strong scientific consensus. The only problem is that there's not a clear plan to achieve this. And so what the forest plan aims to do is to chart a roadmap for how we can end deforestation. And it charts out the role of our organization in, in making a meaningful contribution to that. So what's the strategy then? The forest plan is based on a recognition that there's a real bright spot here in the fight to end deforestation. It starts with the recognition that forest loss is driven by economics, by the needs of hundreds of millions of people living in and around the forests of the world to achieve basic needs and chart a path to prosperity. Absent any alternatives, the value of the forest for these people is going to be cut down and used for subsistence agriculture or logging, commodity crops, and so forth. There's a mechanism, and it's one that's been working for well over a decade now, and it's based on the United Nations reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, Red Plus. It's a voluntary market expression of that, project-based, market-based, Red Plus. Red Plus programs, community-centered, wildlife-centric Red programs have been generating hundreds of millions of tons of emissions reductions over this period of time, over the decade, while generating transformative benefits to communities all over the world. And so our plan really takes as its point of departure the proven successes of this model at reducing deforestation by transforming the economic relationship and the social relationship between people and forests and scaling that model to its fullest expression. So what exactly defines or what is a Red Plus project? Red Plus projects are initiatives that are undertaken in partnership between different configurations of specialized project developers like large, well-known international NGOs and conservation enterprises, in partnership with local communities living in landscapes, and in partnership with governments, both at regional, local, and national level. And these consortia decide together to begin a multi-decadal initiative to end deforestation in that landscape. That's the beginning part of a RED project. And together they collaborate to design and implement activities in the landscape that address the drivers of deforestation within that landscape and arrange for activities along with local communities that are aimed at generating basic needs and prosperity for those communities in a manner that is consistent with their own aspirations. And through those programs of work, deforestation is reduced against the baseline. And we can talk about that a little bit more as we get further into this conversation. And as those projects are successful at reducing deforestation against their baseline, they can sell the verified emissions reductions that are generated to companies that are seeking to undertake the highest impact actions that they can for the benefit of the climate and biodiversity. And through those resources, they're able to finance over a long-term basis their agendas of work. What's the potential scalability of uh, Red Plus then? We believe Red Plus can scale ultimately to protect an area of forest that's 17% or even more of what is projected to be the forest loss in some of the most important countries around the world um, for forests such as Brazil, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Indonesia, Cambodia, Papua New Guinea, and so forth. So 
We believe that the project-based Red Plus modality can make a very meaningful contribution to ending deforestation in these most highly threatened landscapes around the world. So if Red Plus can prevent 17% of forest loss, what about the other 83%? Yeah, it's the glass 17% full or 83% empty. And it's really the question of the relationship between Red Plus and other project-based Red Plus and other modes of intervention. We believe, and the Forest Plan sort of expresses this belief, that jurisdictional programs, particularly national scale programs, are going to be necessary if we're going to tackle deforestation at full scale and we believe that those programs have yet to really demonstrate yet their effectiveness, whereas project-based RED has shown itself to be quite effective. And so we believe that the path to achieving that kind of scale, Ian, is through an integration or synthesis of jurisdictional scale programs that are overseen by countries and project-based expressions that really land interventions in the landscapes where forest loss is actually happening. Who all needs to be on board to achieve this then? You need the governments of forest nations to commit to putting forward what we call jurisdictional nested programs. This means Red Plus programs that are operated through government policy at a national level, which also enable projects of the sort that I've mentioned earlier to take place within the framework, the accounting framework, the administrative framework, the policy framework of those national programs. And there's a number of countries that have begun to do this, both at national and at provincial level. Democratic Republic of Congo, Colombia, Cambodia are just some of the leaders who have kind of gone out ahead um, to begin developing these jurisdictional nested programs. So government's a really, really essential piece of this. Project-based Red Plus has attracted some criticisms. Let's address some of those now. The issue of leakage where deforestation just moves outside a project boundary, how can that be addressed? I think one of the ways that this is addressed is, again, going back to the point of jurisdictional nested programs, when you contain your overall carbon accounting at the scale of the jurisdiction of the nation, then the possibility of leakage at a project level is more or less eliminated. I will say on the other hand, though, Ian, and it's important really to point out, is that high quality standards that govern voluntary market Red Plus currently, such as the verified carbon standard of, of Veras, they address leakage quite clearly in the standard. Leakage actually is monitored in defined leakage belts, and any emissions that take place within the leakage belt are, are counted against the net emissions reductions that are generated by a project. Leakage is already explicitly addressed quantitatively within the framework of existing standards. So it's to recognize the possibility that it takes place on the one hand and also to acknowledge that it is addressed in a direct way already. There's another aspect of leakage that I think isn't talked about, which is just worth pointing out, which is that conservation benefits the benefits of improved livelihoods um, and of changing relationships between people and forests, there's a positive leakage that can happen within landscapes as well. And I think it's just worth pointing that out because we've seen some examples of that in some of the projects where we work in. Anyway, you asked a question about the criticism and this is how they're addressed both within the framework of the existing standards 
and in the framework of new program designs, such as the nested jurisdictional programs that I mentioned. So baselines, we talked about them already, clearly getting them right is very important. How are baselines best established? This is another question that I think actually merits its own special conversation because of its importance. And I think also because of the strength of, I dare say, emotion behind it, as opposed to the strength of the data that's actually behind, especially the critique. So on the subject of baselines, a baseline is a counterfactual scenario. So it, it's an expression of, by definition, what's not going to happen in the area that you're creating the baseline scenario for. Why is it not going to happen? Is because you're having the project intervention. The ability to assess a good baseline, good being defined as the correspondence of the baseline to reality, is something that from a methodological standpoint is tricky to actually assess. It's my own belief personally that there is not necessarily a priori a better or a worse way to create a baseline, at least not on the basis of the definition of good that I've mentioned. What is happening now as it relates to baselines is a movement to create baselines no longer in the future on the basis of a scenario of what most likely would be taking place without the project. And these are bottom-up scenarios that are constructed by an understanding of the dynamics and the landscape. Is this an area that is receiving a lot of in-migration from people who want to grow coffee um, because it's favorable, because this is an area of forest that's a little bit upslope, right? And so you have in-migration. It's an example of the kind of scenario from observed situations on the ground that might lead to the creation of a baseline, a quantitative baseline projection through modeling. The way things are going now, and it's in line with the movement to jurisdictional programs and nested programs, is to create baselines in the following way by looking at the trends of forest loss in the wider landscape, so at, say, at the level of the country, and then to create risk maps, maps that kind of show you where the hotspots of deforestation have been, and to assess, basically to look at what you think are the highest risk areas for future deforestation. And so what they'll then do is allocate the national projected forest loss proportionally to the hotspot areas where projected future deforestation is thought to be most likely to happen based on past trends. So it's just a different way to approach it, and it has different design objectives than a bottom-up scenario-driven baseline. It's actually unclear currently what is, quote, better, but the latter approach lends itself to integration within jurisdictional nested programs, and that is the direction in which baseline setting is going to be going in the future for, for voluntary programs. How can emissions reductions credits purchased by companies from a project basis best be nested into national policies and targets to avoid something else? It's a thrown sometimes at a project-based um, red plus in terms of double counting of the emission reductions. How can that be avoided? Well, first of all, there's no possibility of the double counting of a voluntary credit into the UN FCCC system. It's not possible to do it. It can't be done. They're completely different accounting systems. So there's never going to be a double counting of an emission reduction. It's not going to happen. To the first part of your question, however, in nested programs, such as the ones that are being developed in Cambodia and in other places, those programs will enable 
the emissions reductions that are being generated at a project level to qualify either for voluntary market credits or for compliance credits should those compliance markets actually come into being under Article 6. And that gives the governments of forest nations the flexibility to draw on the compliance markets, government to government, or on the private market for whatever they think is going to be the best value that they can obtain for their successful efforts to reduce emissions. That is really the great value of these programs for governments. It gives them flexibility to go in whatever direction works the best for them to monetize the benefits of the ecosystem services that they are preserving for the benefit of humanity. And that was part of the changes or the developments that came out of COP26, the so-called Article 6, where the definitions and how the carbon markets were going to work in the future were finally agreed. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, and a lot of details still to come. So we're indicatively, the blueprint is there, but there's a lot of work still ahead. For those who, who are kind of critical of the voluntary carbon markets at this time, I think it's always important to remind ourselves that the goal of the world is to end deforestation within this decade. And why? It's because you have no chance of achieving the climate stabilization targets set forth in the Paris Accords without doing so, without eliminating deforestation. And so, you know, the, this, the track record of public sector programs like this moving at this kind of speed, it's not there. On the other hand, what is the case is that the markets have recognized this need to end deforestation as an imperative for humanity, and they're putting the financial resources behind programs of work, Voluntary Red Plus, to actually achieve that. While these kinds of programmatic details are worked out in conference rooms in the North, real money is flowing to communities to actually end deforestation in the global south now. And it's our own view that this is work that needs to be accelerated, not hindered. And that's the value of the voluntary markets today. They are responding at the scale and with the speed that's necessary to actually tackle the problem. Voluntary carbon markets are booming and there's now an unprecedented level of potential carbon finance available to fund Red Plus projects. What's the best way to take advantage of this fantastic opportunity? (laughs) Well, our forest plan, when you reduce it to its essence, develop more projects with the best consortia of developers, communities, and governments, and to engage more buyers of verified emissions reductions to support those projects. It's a pretty simple formula. Develop great projects, support the great projects in the marketplace. That's it. We have proven developers, we have proven projects, we have a path to growth that is based on a foundation of science-based standards and repeated third-party audits by independent auditors. So build on that. Do more of it. It's really simple. I like it. Do more of this better. Yeah, that that is exactly a simple approach, but it's one that can work. Okay, what will constitute success then over the coming years? What are the milestones you're going to be looking for? Again, back to simplicity, at least for us in the forest plan, we've got a time-bound action plan. And our goal is to successfully facilitate the development of 75 new Red Plus projects with our current developer partners and new ones that we'll bring on board over time in partnership with us. We've got a growth plan to get to 75 projects by 2030. 
And you know, the program's already been launched with a path-breaking $2 billion commitment, financing commitment from Hartree Partners to provide the financing for a new portfolio of over 20 new projects to be led by premier Red Plus project developer in the world, Wildlife Works. So we're already starting with tremendous momentum to this. So We've got transparent reporting in the forest plan on our milestones and our key performance indicators, not just on the growth at the level of the number of projects, but also the achievements that they're making for the communities, for the impacts that they're generating. So we're going to be monitoring them as we do with all of our current projects, how they're doing with respect to delivering health and well-being to local communities through water and sanitation and food security, um, women's empowerment, economic development, education forest governments, land tenure rights, community benefit sharing, all of these things are transparently monitored and reported on. And we have targets that we set forth for each one of these areas in the forest plan. So that's what success is going to look like and keep checking in with us each year because we're going to be providing annual reports and issuing them out for engagement with our stakeholders. Well, Josh, it's certainly highly ambitious. Obviously, there are lots of things that have to fall into place, but ambition is required if deforestation is to be halted. I look forward to finding out more about your success over the coming years. But for now, Josh Sosten, President of Everland, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. And don't forget that if you want to join the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference in Amsterdam this autumn, you can take advantage of discounts and passes if you reserve your place now. Everything you need to know about that is available online. But that's all for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.